Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, help us to understand what we do not understand. Help us to love what we do not love, and help us to obey where we struggle to obey. Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's uh, f- a fun um, preaching the other popular Christmas passage uh, just after Christmas. I also want to say, if you're a little chilly this morning, my wife said I should tell you that the air conditioning works great in this building. So you can just go up to the windows and feel it all coming right in through our super airtight windows. So here we are in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, clipping away. Next week we'll be in chapter 2. I could have had you read, uh, and and hopefully you did, looking ahead. If you don't do that each week, I would encourage you to. Uh, You would have gotten this tidbit of information, and that is you should have read Isaiah 7 and 8 as well. We'll spend about half of our time in Isaiah 7 and 8, roughly. Choices, choices, and more choices. Every day is filled with choices. Every, almost every moment is filled with a choice. And certainly a timely consideration at this time of year. I would simply ask you, what choices are you having to make right now? Even in this moment, you're making choices, but certainly this time of year, we all make choices. For some of us, we're making choices right now that will change or affect the directory or the, uh, or the direction, rather, or the uh, impact or uh, things that will happen the rest of the year. You're making many decisions. Maybe you're one of those who makes um, you know, New Year's resolutions uh, just so that they can you know, become this year's failed resolutions a couple of weeks later. But not just those big pivotal choices. What about the small choices as well? They all boil down really to this simple question. Let me help you in the decision-making process. They all boil down to this decision to some measure, and that is, will I choose God's way or will I choose my way? 
Will it be my way or will it be God's way? Will it be under his authority and for his glory or under my authority and for my glory? Now, I wonder how many of us skip that step right there. Or we think that just intuitively or magically or subconsciously, that's a part of the equation. And I mean from, again, from big, huge decisions down to the small ones. Is this under God's authority for His glory or my authority and for my glory? I wonder how many of us make a decision wondering thinking, considering, will this be God's way or my way? I think many times we tend to make decisions less about which is God's way and which isn't, and more about which decision will make me happiest. And and that could look a variety of ways. It could look like which will be the least stressful, which will be the most comfortable, which will affect my uh, sentimentality the most, which will make me feel warm and fuzzy the most. Like, so what makes me happiest can look different ways depending on your, your bent. Maybe which decision will be least costly to me. I think we tend to make decisions that way versus is this God's way or my way? In common vernacular, the question would be, which way, modern man? Which way, God's way or your way? And again, I don't just mean in the big decisions of life, like buying a house or that one, or taking this promotion or staying put, or buying some store-bought eggs or good eggs. Most of our life, most of our life, is driven by more by a series of small choices, not the random, infrequent, big life choices. Decisions like whether or not to come to church when it's cold, or whether to read your Bible or not, or whether to have this hard conversation or that one, or whether to submit to your emotions this afternoon, or to reason in objective truth, or whether to discipline your child this time, or wait till the next time that never seems to actually happen. It's a series of small choices that really more impact our life than it is sitting around waiting to be the wisest you can be on the big decisions of life. Even in wisdom decisions, I would encourage you, are you doing it God's way or your way? Will you come to the conclusion God's way or your way? Will you make it walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh? Will you make it in community or will you make it in isolation? Will you do it God's way or your way? Choices. Which way will it be? God's way or your way? My way or God's way? And in the considering of this choice... I wonder if we really know what's at stake. Do we really consider? And I think this is part of why we don't stop to think with each decision, is this God's way or my way? Because we don't understand what's at stake when we choose one or the other. It's not just, uh, will this be the best way or the worst way or the comfortable way or whatever, there is more at stake. What I, what, I, what I hope 
you'll see by the end of today is that God's way invites redemption. Our way invites judgment. God's way invites redemption. Our way invites judgment. Now, what I think we see here in Matthew chapter 1 in the latter half is a juxtaposition of two people. Or uh, if you don't know what that word means, like a compare and contrast of two people. In Matthew 1, the, the person is Joseph. Joseph. In Isaiah 7 and 8, where we'll spend a good bit of time today, is Ahaz, King Ahaz, the king of Judah. There's a compare and a contrast. There's a juxtaposition of these two people. Without getting ahead of myself, Joseph chose to trust God and do it God's way, and so invited redemption. Ahaz chose to trust himself and do it his own way, and so invited judgment. And you thought this was going to be another Christmas sermon. One chooses God's way, the other chooses his own way. And then here's where we're going to ultimately land today. So I'm giving you the, the, the blueprint for where we're headed. In this story, both parties, both Joseph and Ahaz, the stories culminate in Emmanuel, God with us. They both head that direction. They both land there, God with us. And the reality is is that no matter which path you choose, God with us as Redeemer or God with us as Judge, the reality is, is it's still God with us. Whether you choose your way or you choose God's way, Emmanuel is still the reality. It will always be true. The difference is how you then experience God with us. What the interaction looks like. You see, in Ahaz's path, God with us leads to judgment. In Joseph's path, God with us lands or heads towards salvation. So I'm going to walk you through, hopefully, so you can see those two pictures today. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Now this, it feels a little bit like an aside here, but it's going to, we're going to walk, walk this through to Joseph, and then ultimately Ahaz, and then Emmanuel, and land there. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. The word used here for birth literally means Genesis, or the beginnings. Now, if, if you've not picked up the, on this already, but Matthew is really not about stating the obvious. Matthew's goal is to use what seems obvious before us to make a theological point. So why is Matthew using this word? Why is he using the idea of communicating beginnings or the genesis of Jesus? It's an, here's why. It's an immediate callback to the book of Genesis. Matthew is drawing us back 
to Genesis 1 in the garden where creation was first birthed. So you got to think, the birth of Jesus, the birth of creation, right? That's the, the, the callback, is back to Genesis. So don't miss the parallel. I want, I want you to see this. In Genesis 1-2, I'm not going to go there and, and read all of this, but you see in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering over the earth, and then God says, let there be blank, right? That's the, the picture. The Spirit is present, hovering over the earth, and then God, through His Son, creates by His speaking. In Matthew 1, verse 18, and I'll read 20 in a second, in verse 18 it says, now the birth, or the, the genesis of of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from what? The Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a, day, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of God, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from what? The Holy Spirit. So Matthew, so let me, let me help you read your Bibles here. Matthew uses the word that literally means Genesis, the beginnings of Christ. Couple that with in both Genesis and Matthew, we have this unique reference to the Holy Spirit. I mean, Matthew even goes out of his way to say it two times here in just a matter of a few words. And in Genesis, again, you have the work of the Spirit in creation. So what do we have in Matthew with the Spirit and Christ? What's, what's, what's Matthew communicating to us? You have this Genesis, beginnings, the work of the Spirit. You have creation happening in Genesis. What's the point? The point is that the work of new creation has begun. That this creation that took place with the Spirit, under the power of God, by His Word, now the Word has come, and the beginnings of Him at the work of the Spirit here. What do, you, what, do you, what do we mean by new creation? If that doesn't land in your heart in a way that moves your affections, either you're not paying attention or you don't know your Bibles or you're dead, all right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Why? Because the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Matthew's telling us that that right there is beginning right here. When the angel is speaking to Joseph, talking about the Christ now alive in his to-be wife, that that new creation that Paul's going to talk about in 2 Corinthians has begun. That new creation, let me paint this picture, just in case you've forgotten or do not know. That new creation that will not be under the burden of sin, that will be set free from our debt to God, that will live without the groanings of evil. This new creation where you have these people in this place that will be true, good, and beautiful. 
where there will be no pain or sorrow, where all unjust kings will be in chains, where we will enjoy the presence of Almighty God like we do now, yet without all the stupid stuff around us. A place of unity and peace, a place of work without sin, a place where the old, sinful, terrible, wrath-deserving flesh of ours has passed away out of sight and given way to a new, righteous, God-enjoying new person. Like a seed once planted that turned into the giant redwood trees of the East Coast. The seed of Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit, has been planted deep within the womb of Mary. That's Matthew's point. And as such, the new creation has begun in this moment. That's what the angel is saying to Joseph. I mean, just, even just look at the way Matthew has structured all of chapter 1. This person begat, this person, this person begat, this person, this person begat, this person, right? Ordinary birth, ordinary birth, ordinary birth, ordinary birth, 41 times. 42nd birth. Supernatural. Old creation, old creation, old creation, old creation, old creation, new creation. Here it is. It's on the scene. He's come. Consider what will one day be for our eyes to behold that will grow out of this tiny seed now planted in Mary. Alive and coming. Like a steady stream, the seed will slowly shape the world around it until one day the entire earth is filled with the glory of God. And it's begun here in Mary's womb. So I simply ask this question as a point of transition. How do we live in light of this new creation? I'll answer that as we go. Matthew makes the birth story all about Joseph. Matthew makes the birth story all about Joseph. Now that point does not answer how do we live, but leads us into this next section. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Luke in his story, his recounting of the birth is all about Mary. And which is, tends to be the more popular or go-to for the telling of the Christmas story. But Matthew is, makes it all about Joseph. He must have not gotten the woke memo. Notice the angel calls Joseph. Sorry, if, if you didn't get... Anyways. If you don't... All right, anyways, moving on. Notice, I don't know if y'all are too afraid to laugh or, you know, if it just wasn't that funny or, or what. Notice the angel. I'm going to give you a few things about Joseph here, okay? The angel calls Joseph the son of David. The son of David. That's important. It's, it's crucial. Now, obviously, in this, in this, just by the, the nature of the conception... 
And arguably, this, your Bibles have this labeled, I think, poorly. It's not so much about the birth of Jesus. It's, it's more about the conception of Jesus. But at this point, we, we know that, that Jesus is going to be adopted by Joseph. But it doesn't matter whether he's the blood of Joseph or adopted by Joseph. What's important is that he's in the line of Joseph. Why? Because the prophecy said that he would be of David's seed, that he would come from the line of David. And so it's crucial. That's why the angel makes sure, and Matthew recounts for us, that, that this is a son of David, that, that, that Joseph is in the line of David, and Jesus was to come from that line. Joseph could not have divorced Mary at this point and had nothing to do with Jesus and the prophecies of the Old Testament come true. At least not as it referred to this. And we would be without a redeemer. Right? So there's a lot that hinges on the angel affirming and saying and reminding Matthew reminding us that this is of the seed of David. He's the son of David. That's why he draws us out. The next thing I want you to see about Joseph is that he's both just and merciful. Both just and merciful. Now, they're betrothed, and I'm sure you've heard in a million other Christmas sermons that betrothal or betrothal means basically marriage without the S word. Right? Just to, yeah, anyways, you can explain that to your kids later what that means. And without shacking up. In fact, it was intentional to be essentially covenanted together here yet physically apart, because one of the primary purposes of this time was to make sure that she was not pregnant. So that's why betrothals lasted six to 12 months. What usually would happen within six to 12 months? A woman gives birth if she's pregnant. That was part of the point. Imagine a patriarch discovering that his daughter had been promiscuous, and instead of taking her and her bastard as a liability, he tries to hurry and marry her off. That would be commonplace. Well, I don't want to have to deal with her, and now you have the baby, so if, if I can hurry up and get her married, I'll, I'll, well, I can get a dowry, I can get money, and I don't have to deal with all the trouble that this is going to be. So they would be betrothed and then ensure and stay apart physically so that he could ensure that the husband, the husband-to-be is not taking on a liability that's not his. So, so this is not just, ooh, they're, they've got this commitment that's more than, a, more than an engagement and she pops up pregnant. The whole point of this period of waiting was to see that she was not pregnant, but she's pregnant. Here we see that Joseph discovers that. I mean, could you imagine the surprise now, hopefully with a little bit more weight, understanding the purpose of being betrothed? I mean, at this point, I understand that Joseph's first thought is not, oh, I bet this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, right? Right? Here comes the virgin birth. I mean, we know that was not his first thought because he plans to divorce her. 
But here's the, here's the thing. Here's what I want. He has every right to divorce her. He would be just in divorcing her at this point. And he would be just to have her put to public shame, too. And I know that's a no-no in our culture right now. Again, missing the woke notes all over the place. But he would be just. That's what she deserved. Had she not been impregnated this way. Instead, Joseph, even though he was just to divorce her, it says that he was going to put her away quietly, showing her mercy, showing her compassion. I think you see here that Joseph truly loves her. Joseph doesn't want her to have to suffer any more consequences than she already is going to. He's going to put her away quiet. I mean, understand that he would be forfeiting the dowry that was paid to get her as well. He plans to divorce her. It's just. He plans to do it quietly. You see his mercy. But then the angel comes, right? So we're in a good place at this point, but then the angel comes. Verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. In a sense, Joseph, you have a right to do this, but this is not what God wants. Just because you have a right to do it doesn't mean you have to do it. Indeed, in this situation, God doesn't want you to do it. And notice the angel points to the scriptures to guide Joseph. He points to the Isaiah passage we're going to get to in a moment to say, this is the direction I want you to go. And so Joseph is faced with the decision. Do I do it my way? Do I play it safe, move on, find a woman whose womb hasn't been taken by someone else? Or I, Joseph, can trust the Lord and what he has said. I can trust that she is conceived, she has conceived by means of the Holy Spirit, and not divorce her, marry her, adopt this child, call him Jesus, and fulfill the prophecies. That's my choice. That's Joseph's choice. I think many of us would have leaned towards plan A. A lot cleaner than having to go against the norm. A lot less troubling for your own soul. Required much less faith. It's just easier to give in to fear. I choose A. But not Joseph. Joseph doesn't choose A. Joseph trusted the Lord. And Joseph walked in obedience. It says in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Boom. He took his wife, but knew her not, meaning no S word, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Instead of choosing fear, Joseph chooses trust. Instead of choosing anxiety, 
Joseph chooses trust. It really is that simple. Joseph did as the Lord commanded him. Period. Joseph has options before him. And in this situation, until the Lord had clearly said option B is the way I want you to go, he had a choice. The next thing I want you to see, and we'll spend most of our time here, is that the king is with us no matter what. The king is with us no matter what. Emmanuel is the reality no matter what. The king will be in his kingdom no matter what. Now, I don't mean that in the way probably many of you are taking it, and that is in the good times and in the bad times, God is with you no matter what. That's certainly true. That's not what I mean. But the king is with us no matter what. Here's the, here's the deal. You and I and the world don't get to choose whether or not God is going to be with us. We don't get to reject Emmanuel, God with us. You know, like I'm going to celebrate Christmas, sing all the Christmas tunes like pentatonics, and reject Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, oh sure, you can suppress the reality in your head that God is with us, but Jesus came in the flesh regardless. That's the reality. Emmanuel is the reality. It's a fact, and one that you and I and the world have to reckon with. We have to reconcile with that reality, that God is with us. Now, we have two options when it comes to reckoning with Emmanuel, God with us. If we believe in the Christ and all he has said, then he will be with us to bless us and save us. If we reject him or any part of him, he will still surely be with us. Yet he will call us to repentance, and when we don't, he will be with us as judge. We have two options. The world has two options when it comes to Emmanuel. Joseph had two options, his way or God's way. The king of Judah, Ahaz, had two options as well. And you say, well, where's this Ahaz? Where's, I, where's this Isaiah 7 and such come from? Look at verse 22 in Matthew. All this took place, meaning all the this Joseph and this angel and this virgin birth and so on, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's the quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 23 there in Matthew is just a snippet of what the Lord had spoken and what was to be fulfilled 
with Joseph and Jesus and Mary. So you have this reference here back to, you have this, all this is happening to fulfill these prophecies. Here's a snippet of this prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Where does that come from? It comes from Isaiah 7. All right, so what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read through all of 7 and 8 for sake of time. I'm going to summarize some of the story. You can go back and read it later if you want. You have the story of Ahaz. Essentially, it's happening in 7 and 8. Ahaz is the evil king of Judah. Israel's broken up at this point, different tribes. And there is much political strife happening all around the region. You have the tribes to Ahaz's north and to his south. Those names are mentioned here in a moment. I'm not going to say them because you won't remember them anyways. And then Assyria to the east is threatening the entire region. What happens is the tribes to Ahaz's north and to his south decide they're going to overtake Ahaz and Judah and install their own king, a puppet king, in in fact, kind of like our president, a puppet king, so that they can manipulate him to do what they want him to do in order to go after Assyria. So to his north and to his south, Ahaz has this threat, and to his east, Assyria is looming. There's no imminent danger. I mean, there's imminent danger, but there's no immediate danger from Assyria at this moment. But listen, at this moment, what happens to Ahaz. Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz and says these words, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Meaning this this being overtaken by this tribe to your north, and this tribe to your south, and Assyria to your east. It, It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of, I should ask Ben how to pronounce this, Remaliah. How about that? That sound good? God promises. What, what's happening? I'll summarize it. God is promising that he will take care of those enemies. He's telling Ahaz, I got this. And Isaiah says, just ask God, and he will give you a sign to assure you of this. Matter of fact, go, go read Isaiah. Anything from the depth of Sheol... To the heights of heaven, Ahaz, just ask for a sign, and I'll give you a sign that this is going to happen, that God will keep this sure. Even to Ahaz, an evil king. Anything you want, you name it, it's yours. And Ahaz responds super piously here. He says, I will not put God to the test. Now, that would normally be a good phrase to say, like we're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. But here's how we know it is just a grand display of piety. If you read the story, while he says, I'm not going to put God to the test, he's over here making a deal, gathering up money to go pay Assyria to come deal with the problems to his north and to his south. He says, I will not put God to the test, 
but he's over here making his own way. He's going to hire Assyria to come deal with the tribe to the north and the tribe to the south. Of which many of us are in the danger of all the time. Over here wanting to sound really pious and spiritual and drawing these lines and being picky about whether this is righteous or not. All while over here walking in our gross inconsistencies in the shadows of our life. Doing it our own way. Well, the story goes on. God says, well, I'm going to make you a sign anyways. And thus we hear the words, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the context that Matthew is quoting from in Isaiah. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz ignores the sign. He ignores the prophet's original pronouncement, and then he ignores the sign. And so what happens is he's secured Assyria to come take care of the problem. What does Assyria do? Assyria comes and takes care of the problem. Defeats the tribe to the north, defeats the tribe to the south. But then let's keep reading. Right, so that's happened, but what happens after that? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5 through 10. Listen to, these, listen to these words, right? So, again, before I read them, hang on. Ahaz has chosen to do it his own way, not God's way. Even in spite of a sign. Assyria has come and taken care of the problem to the north and the south. And here we have these words, 5 through 10. The Lord spoke to me again. Because his peoples has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. So let me summarize what's happening here. Ahaz and the people of Judah, under his leadership, refused to do it God's way. God's way, in what we just read, is likened to the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Ahaz and his people chose their way, which in the the metaphor here is likened to the mighty river and waters of Assyria and his glory. But look what happens. Look at the picture. The picture is being painted. So Ahaz's way is this big mighty river. 
God's way is likened to this gentle flowing uh, stream, the waters of Shiloh. But look what happens. The waters of Ahaz's own decision, doing it his own way, those waters don't stay in the river. They don't stay inside the banks. It says, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. Verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Here's this point. If you do not choose God's way, the other way is still Emmanuel. It's still God with us. But it is God with us as judge. See, the king with us as judge. You see, our own deliverance, our own way, our own means always seem effective for a season. They always seem right and good and peaceful for a season. Right? Ahaz is, was in this for a moment. He chose his way, the tribe to the north, the tribe to the south, all taken care of. Seems good. Seems effective. Seems like he's chosen a good way. But, but what happens when we don't choose God's way, which is resembled in here as the mighty rivers of Assyria. If you read the story in Isaiah, what happens is Assyria comes, takes care of the tribe to the north, the tribe to the south. Ahaz is like, awesome. I chose my way, but it's working out good. I didn't listen to the prophet, but it's still working out good. This season feels great. Well, Assyria is not satisfied with the tribe to the north and the tribe to the south. Where does Assyria go now? I want Judah too. I want to take the land of Judah too. I want to take Ahaz's kingdom too. That's the rivers flowing. It's not satisfied to stay in the bank, in between the banks. Listen, our own way never stays inside the banks. It will always overflow and take the rest. Your sin never stays in the banks. This is both true as an elder and it's true in parenting. That sin, sin not repented for always grows. Like as a parent, if you miss out on that opportunity to discipline your child whether they're two or, or 16, don't worry. If they don't repent for that sin, it will grow and you'll have another opportunity. Our sin grows. Our way, doing it our way, will grow. All hope in anything but Christ will eventually come for payment. Like a raging river up to the neck. 
Let me give you an example. In your marriage, especially for you men, or if you're not married, I think you'll still understand the picture here. Especially for you men, you husbands, you know your wife is sinful. I'm just, you know, none of your wives in here are sinful, I know. But metaphorically speaking, all right? Your wife is sinful. Maybe she's bitter. Maybe she's greedy. Maybe she's lazy. Maybe she's an emotional mess. Maybe she's chasing something outside the home while neglecting the house. Who knows? Name, name the sin. And you think to yourself, I know I should confront it. Right? The prophet Isaiah has come and he says, you should confront it. But you decide to do it your own way. Try to be quiet about it. Try to keep the peace. But then, just a few years down the road, your children are a mess. Your marriage is a mess. Your relationship with your church is a mess. But hey, you had a couple seasons of peace. But hey, your way seemed effective for a time. But it's just like the old saying, right? Even a clock is, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Sure, that season felt nice. It felt like the tribes to the north and the tribe to the south had been defeated, right? There was no obvious chaos in the home. There was no obvious strife and pain. What was happening? The, the waters were still there. They were just bubbling underneath the surface. Waiting for the day where Assyria would not be content with staying in between the banks. And now you look around and the waters are up to your neck. Everything's a mess. Again, God gave you a sign in His Word. Do the small faithful things right now. But instead, you chose to do it your way. And now Assyria has come for your land too. All of it. Like an insatiable desire. He has these haunting words in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. He says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Ahaz chose his own path. Now back to Joseph. What did Joseph choose? He did not choose to quietly divorce her. He chose God's path, God's plan. You see, when you choose like Ahaz, your path, you invite the judgment of Emmanuel. The rivers come. They overtake. But when like Joseph, you choose the Lord's path, you choose faith in what he has said, trust and obedience. It is Emmanuel with us as Redeemer, Savior, come to bless his people. Look at verse 21. 
And this is the angel talking to, to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? In the English, the word there is for. For what? You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, if you choose this path over your own path, you will adopt a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Two quick things I I want you to see and make note of here. The first is this, your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is our own sin. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem. But how much do we spend life, how much of our lives do we get caught up in all the other problems? As if they're the greatest problem. It says he came to save his people from their sins. When we invite Emmanuel with us as Redeemer, he resolves our greatest problem, which is our sin. Your greatest problem is not your circumstances. It's not your past, no matter how traumatic it was. Do you hear me? No matter how traumatic it was, that's not your greatest problem. Your prediction of the future and your anxiety that comes subsequent is not your greatest problem. Your understanding of theology is not your greatest problem. God is not your greatest problem. Your church is not your greatest problem. The government and not even the liberals. Your greatest problem is your sin. And Jesus will save his people from their sin. When we invite, when we believe Emmanuel and all that he has said, and we walk in his ways, So he has saved his people from their sins. The second thing, it says that he, the second quick note I want you to see, it says he will save his people from their sins, not all the peoples. His people. His people. Now, we don't know who his people are. Could be your neighbor. It may not be your neighbor. We should... We should share the gospel as if it's every neighbor. But we don't know who his people are. There's not a sticker on the back of their shirts that say, you know, kick me. I'm ready to receive the gospel. But he will surely save his people from their sins. Now, three quick categories here, and I'm going to land the plane. For some of us, we still haven't actually chosen God's way. What do I mean by that? Meaning we still haven't chosen God's way of redemption. What you're doing is trying to prove your own righteousness by checking this religious box or that religious box. You do this Christian thing or that Christian thing. 
for you just like Ahaz. It seems effective for the moment. You have days in your week that feel good. Days where you feel like your faith is strong. But at the core, what you're choosing is your way to prove your righteousness. Listen, like Ahaz, you will have moments that feel effective. But here's the problem. As sure as God is judge, the river of your own way will eventually crash over the banks and overtake you, overtake you beyond the neck. If you still refuse God, the river will be your grave. It's a metaphor for you will go to hell. For others of us, in the eternal game of life, we've chosen God's way. I believe in the, and have faith that, that Christ has come, that he's my redeemer. That Christ has paid the price for my sins, and I, and I trust in him wholly. But then, on a regular daily basis, we continue to choose our way. And we all struggle with this. We all, multiple times every day, like Ahaz, we're saying, I'm not going to put God to the test, but I'm going to go over here and pay a Siri to take care of my problems. Instead of having the conversation I should have, I'm going to go over here and take care of my own problems. Instead of doing the hard thing that I know is the righteous and faithful thing, I'm going to go over here and take care of my problems, my way. If we lack in that conundrum, if we lack the humility to go and repent to the Lord, those rivers over here will eventually catch up to us. The river will rise to your neck and sweep you away. Now on the flip side, in the third category, those who do see it and walk in repentance, let me show you something. Or connect a couple dots for you. Back to Matthew 1, verse 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, this prophecy is from Isaiah. He is prophesying that one day there will come the true Emmanuel, the ultimate God with us, which is then Jesus referred to here in Matthew. I, Isaiah is prophesying that. What it's all pointing to is that when Christ comes, all those who trust in Him, all those who walk in repentance and faith, will know the gift of the one who will save them from their sins. And the assurance for us, listen to me, Christian. Between now and then, between now and the moment Christ comes back and we see his face and we are changed in an instant. Because of our own sin, the waters may come up to our neck at times. 
But if we are his, <laughs> those waters will never overtake us. It will never take us under. Ever. Why? Because Emmanuel is with you. And his name is Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. He will save us from our sins. Though the water may come to our neck because of our own sinful choosing, he will save us from our sins. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, though at times it seems like the water is right at the, above our necks even, and right at the crest of the, the tip of our nose, or maybe we even feel like we have a straw from our mouth to the top of the water and we can't see. We're reminded here that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That though our own sinfulness put us in that place, it will be your grace and mercy to cast your justice upon Jesus and show us the mercy that we do not deserve. Father, I pray as we sing today, as we enjoy the good news of the gospel, that it would be just that, a joy, a joy to sing of our Savior, a joy to say, even though at my own fault, the waters come up to my neck, I shall trust in Jesus, for He is with me, and He has come to save me from my sin. Father, for your glory, I ask these things. Amen.